latest episode of the It's Canon Podcast. The podcast where we talk about all things everything. We talk about all things geek. We talk about all things video games, all things toys, all things movies, all things books, all things Star Wars, all things Lego. Anything and everything. And the best part of it all is that it's all in canon. Again, I am riding solo on this episode. And that's because Phil and Tyler deserve all the time off. Again, I want to thank them for all of the work that they've done on this podcast. It means a lot to me. As much as all of the listeners, that means the most to me. Again, we're reaching into the vault and we're getting archived episode. Again, I'm, you know, we still want to deliver content to you. So I figure we're going to hit the vault again. And this week on today's episode, we're going to revisit an interview with Jim Zub. We recently re-interviewed Jin Zub in October. I believe it was late October. And it was a fun episode. And we made a lot of references to our first interview, which was four or five years ago. And I got it from the vault. We're going to play it in full. And it's interesting because this originally aired on August 9th, 2016. So four and a half years ago. And listening to Jim Zub and the projects he wanted to work on and what he was working on. And this was right when Skull Kickers was ending as Wayward was picking up steam. And as he started working on new IP. And it's funny to see where he was then, where he is now. So I think that that contrast and that conversation was a fun one to revisit. And I hope that everyone has fun revisiting the same way that I had fun um originally doing it so without further ado here we go boris and tyler interview jim zub Hey everyone, welcome to the It's Canon Podcast. It is another beautiful Sunday here in Toronto. Um, As always, I am your host, I am Boris, and I am joined by... Tyler, that's me. And uh, we have the amazing Jim Zub on as a guest this week, and uh, our other host Kyle couldn't make it, unfortunately. So, uh, three of us today. Yeah. So, Jim... Welcome, Hello. welcome. <laughs> thanks for having me on board, guys. No, thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure. I know this week must have been a pretty busy, possibly tough week with uh, Skull Kickers ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really quite uh, hectic, but not in a bad way. It's it's just been really really busy between finishing off Skull Kickers and and sending other projects off to press and convention stuff. The summer is always kind of kind of insane. Yeah, so I can imagine. You just kind of got to get used to it. You sort of go, okay, this is how it's going to roll for a few months. Right. So for some of our listeners who may not know who Jim Zub is, he has written tons and tons of books. He's been in the scene for over 10 years. Um, really, if he's probably best known for Samurai Jack, uh, 
Disney Kingdom's Figment, currently writing Wayward, just finished uh, Skull Kickers. Um, the list goes on and on and on and on. And on. And on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, so just tell us, how does someone from Toronto end up writing comic books? Um, I was, I came to it in kind of a, a weird angle, but I guess, you know, the more people I talk to working in this business, I don't think anyone has a straightforward story. Like every single person I've talked to who's working in comics came into it usually unexpectedly. There's very few people that sort of go, okay, I'm going to make comics. And then they just, you know, end up exactly where they kind of expected. So in my case, um, like a lot of other people, obviously I grew up a big comic book fan, but I didn't honestly think I would end up working in the business. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, everything, especially in the superhero comic area, was all being done, you know, out of New York. Or at least it seemed that way. You would read about it. And it was like New York was kind of the hub of everything. And if you didn't live there or you weren't some brilliant British guy like Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman, it just didn't seem like they were, that was a viable kind of, uh, you know, path. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I got into animation originally. That's where my kind of creative background is. I went to school for classical animation at Sheridan College. Awesome. Um, I took a, a year of film and multimedia at Humber. So I learned a little bit about sort of script writing and storytelling and, and you know, cinematography stuff there. But I was sort of set pretty, uh, you know, uh, dead set on, on working in animation. You know, I knew there was quite a bit of animation stuff happening in Canada. Yeah. I knew that there was training I could get. And it just seemed like a much more viable kind of uh, career path. Uh, plus, you look at a movie and there's like tons of credits of people. So it's like, oh, I could be one of those people. Yeah. Look at the credits of a comic book. You're like, oh, there's like three or four people there. Yeah. So if I could, you know, make the grade or, or, or make it in that, you know, cut. So comics weren't the original plan. Uh, obviously, I love them and, you know, would love to work in them. But it wasn't sort of where I thought I would end up being. So I ended up working in animation for several years, working at a few different studios, working on a bunch of different kind of Canadian animation productions, uh, you know, contributing in mostly in the background, what's called the layout department. Okay. Uh, and then the industry was really going through a lot of upheaval. The, you know, the digital sort of revolution and 3D animation was really coming into its own. And my training had been very traditional, kind of hand-drawn animation shot on cameras and stuff. I was like the last year that they really focused on the the film end of things as opposed to digital. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I was just on the wrong side of the line and everything was switching over to digital and I didn't have a lot of training on that front. So my original plan was to go back to school for 3D animation and get into video games or get into 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was signed up to go to a, a, a course and I ended up um, that summer before I was getting ready to go back to school a friend of mine told me he was working at somewhere called uh, the Udon Studio or Udon Entertainment. Okay. And they're an art studio that was doing comic book stuff and they were doing sort of um, art and design for all kinds of different aspects of the industry. And so I went there and what was supposed to be a summer job just to make a little bit of money before I went back to school ended up sort of spinning off into a whole new career where I started doing artwork for them but then eventually moved into kind of like project management and the opportunity came up on a couple projects for me to write, uh, you know, working with the artists at the studio. And I just realized how much I really, really loved that and just really wanted to keep doing that sort of thing. 
awesome. So, uh, long story short, you know, like nine years at the studio eventually turned into uh, me starting to work on my own comics. I've been originally mm-hmm. teaming up with a couple of the Udon artists, and now, uh, you know, that sort of parlayed that into all kinds of other comic book writing work bit yeah. by bit. Yeah, and then you're kind of off to the races, so it just eventually builds momentum, and then now we're here. Yeah, yeah, it's been, you know, it seems sort of logical when you follow it through, but in the midst of it, it, it it's not so clear. Like, you're sort of trying to figure out what you want to do, and, you know, originally, I was really focused on, okay, I'm going to be an animator, and I yeah. still have those skills, and I actually uh, teach at uh, Seneca College in their animation program. Oh, awesome. But, yeah, it's which is a ton of fun, and I really mm-hmm. love it. But in terms of storytelling, being able to collaborate with someone else and create a story, being able to build something like a comic with a nice tight knit crew and see it come out, you know, relatively quickly compared to film or compared to games or a lot of other medium. It's been really, really satisfying. And I realized how much I love that. And the more I do, the more excited I get about it. So really now over the last particularly the last two to three years, it's really been a heavy focus for me. And it's something that I want to pursue more and more of and so far so good like I've had the opportunity to work with practically you know almost all the major comic publishers in North America so everyone from Marvel to DC mm-hmm. and Dark Horse Image um, you know Dynamite and and obviously you know Udon and IDW mm-hmm. just it's been a real yeah real roller coaster of, of opportunity yeah so you mentioned all these different companies and like you know Marvel, Image, DC, IDW, et cetera, et cetera. How different are the processes within every company, you know, for as a writer, from getting the project to seeing it go out to the stores? You know, how how do the how does the process vary between from company to company? Um, I'd say it's even even more than company to company. It's actually project to project. So it's like depending on the the art team you're working with or depending on whether it's, you know, creator owned or work for hire and mm-hmm. depending on kind of the processes that your editor has and the way that they work, even within the same company, it can be quite varied. And so you kind of have to get used to each project is sort of going to have its own challenges or its own different kind of pipeline process. Sometimes you're more heavily involved in the decision making at every step and other times um, you know, my job as a writer is to contribute the script and then sort of step away and let let the editor or let the other people kind of do their thing without yeah. much input. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not the norm. I tend to be pretty involved. I like being involved in the whole process and I like, um, you know, having an art background as well. I want to see the art as it's being developed. I want to be able to, you know, chime in and, and not necessarily just ask for changes, but just, you know, let people know what I'm thinking or, or make sure that we're all kind of on the same page. Exactly. You you can be the most talented writer and you know, what you put down on words on a page and what someone reads that and then interprets that can be totally different. Absolutely. I mean, and that's one of the things that's really interesting about writing comics is the, the text that you see, you know, the dialogue or the captions, that's just one part of the writing. The script is almost like a, it's almost like you're cheerleading the artist or you're trying to, you know, help them, sort of fire their imagination to see not necessarily the exact same thing as you, but to be inspired to draw something that will exemplify the story and the Mm -hmm. concepts. And so it's part, you know, part of what I'm writing is actual text dialogue that's going to show up on the final page. Yeah. But I'm also just sort of getting a vision or, or inspiring them to want to draw, you know, the scenes as they're set out and, and collaborate back and forth. You know, the, the writer isn't just, 
I'm not in charge in the sense that I'm telling everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. It's about maybe putting the first elements down that we can then build off of. Yeah. As yeah. far as the story goes. There's sort of like a project architect. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it, it sounded like uh, you were like, the project management stuff you were saying. There's a lot of transferable skills that you're like, oh, I can do this. But instead of it being uh, uh, didactic, I think is the word I'm looking for. Instead of it being that, it's very collaborative and it's the back and forth. Yeah. But still well, using those skills. One of the nice advantages, because I had uh, the, the experience working as a project manager at Udon and, and managing on all sorts of client projects, I learned a lot about working with other people, you know, making sure that everyone knows what they need in order to get the job done, being able to build a schedule and, and hit deadlines. I know that doesn't sound very sexy. It's not very exciting. Oh, but, but so man, oh man, it's really useful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really useful to understand those elements of the business and to be able to bring those skills to bear. You know, as much as you might want to just do your job, the reality is at the end of the day, knowing what other people's jobs are and what their responsibilities will be makes you better at your job because you can then provide the things that they need or you can be, uh, you know, you're that much more aware of what's required when you're putting together your piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And so um, the business stuff and the publishing stuff and, and all the client work that I did for years is really paid dividends on my own projects where when I work with an editor, I've been an editor, like I know what would make me happy if I'm working on a project or what kinds of things I can do to make their job easier. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of people ideally, you know, you want to keep working with. So hopefully I keep making a good impression and, and more projects come my way. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have been cause you're, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like every week there's, we're reviewing when you, one of your books. Yep. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool feeling to be able to contribute you know, to so many properties that both, you know, commercial ones like work for hire stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Conan or, or Samurai Jack or things like that. But then to be able to also leverage that to create my own stories and, and to be able to do both at the same time is really ideal because I, I, I they're very different um, challenges and mm-hmm. I find that they make me a better writer, mm-hmm. you know, that being given a sort of framework or a sandbox to play in is very cool. And it, it helps generate a lot of ideas that I wouldn't have come up with on my own. But obviously, you know, also being able to create stuff that's all mine and and take that all the way to the hoop is very gratifying and is a, is a different kind of a challenge. So when people ask me, they're like, oh, what do you prefer, creator owned or work for hire? I'm like, selfishly, I kind of want both. Yeah. Like, I don't want to just pick one. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I can just, you know, keep that rolling, having both types of projects underway. Right. Actually, that's awesome because we were. I was about to ask you about that. It's which would you pr- prefer, and et cetera, right. et cetera. <laughs> no, it's a really common question, and I, and I think it's what's nice about the industry right now is it doesn't have to be a binary kind of question. Exactly, it just mm-hmm. have to be, you only get to do one. You know, it, the the opportunities now, particularly uh, in this space for creator own, people want new stories, people want new concepts just as much as they want the familiar. Yeah, and you see the the real resurgence of image comics and creator owned as whole, as a whole. And I think that that's a symbol of that. People are excited about the new, they're excited about uh, different stories and genres and, and yeah. stuff and, than they've seen before. And it's also as new readers are coming into comic books, a lot of them, it's a daunting task to say, look, I'm a new reader. What, you know, what should I read? Yeah, here's 40 years worth of continuity. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which, yeah, which, yeah. Where, where should I start with Batman? And it's like, well, you can start in one of these five locations. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what I usually tell people is I point them to, you know, a creator-owned book because, you know, mm. most of the time they have a beginning, middle, end. Yeah, uh, and, and it's usually just one series. So you're like, well, buy issue one and you'll be at the start or grab the first trade paperback or, or what may have you, you know. And so you look at something like – and I think you see that also in the sales. When you do have a series that gets turned into media or whatever, you know, like – so Spider-Man, a new Spider-Man movie comes out and Spider-Man comics don't necessarily, the monthly comics don't see a huge spike in readership yeah. because I think there's so many different Spider-Man books they could get. But you look at something like The Walking Dead, well, people go out and they buy that, those books in droves because it's one series and it's one book that yeah. they can easily sort of point at, you know. Oh, totally. That makes yeah, I mean, it's actually that I actually want to ask a kind of a weird opinion question. Then we've asked a few different people who've been on the show, but if you had introduced someone who didn't read comics, like what would you point them to? Um, I. It's a tough one, right? Like, yeah, the common answer tends to be like you know I point them towards something that I love, and that's mm-hmm. a great answer. But what I usually do is I kind of turn the question back on exactly. them. I say, what kind of movies do you like? What kind of media do you already consume? Mm-hmm. And then let me focus you towards that, rather than it being about here's what I like. Yeah, you know, if you love Quentin Tarantino movies, like then start reading Preacher or you know mm-hmm. like stuff like that, rather than me just saying here's what I like, you should like yeah. it too. You know, obviously I want people to love what I love, but <sighs> it's a lot easier to sort of focus them on the types of things that they're already reading mm-hmm. or sort of they're already, you know, into yeah. and my dad, you know, wouldn't read the kinds of comics that I like, but he grew up listening to the old radio serials of like the Lone Ranger and the shadow. So I got him those comics and he quite enjoys them. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're like, Oh, okay. That's a natural fit. You know, I'm not necessarily buying every issue of the shadow, but my dad would, you know, he could get into that. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that I can sort of look at and go, okay, it's not about my taste. It's about, re, you know, sort of teaching you without trying to sound too, you know, school marm or whatever, <sighs> teaching you that the comics medium has something for you, mm-hmm. not just, okay, now you have to read the X-Men yeah. you know, because I read the X-Men. <laughs> yeah. So I point people towards, you know, commonly I'll point them towards things like bone or I point them towards, Raina Telemeyer's stuff, like Smile and Sisters, depending okay. on who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I point them towards graphic novels, obviously stuff like Saga or Walking Dead or Atomic Robo, stuff that is easy to get into and doesn't have a dearth of continuity and tends to be really clear in terms of the storytelling. Yeah. And then, you know, over time, you can sort of shift them into more complex, more stuff, you know, not that, not that those books aren't great. They're phenomenal. But Mm -hmm. you can sort of then say, okay, now let's, now let's look at superheroes. Yeah. The the weird vortex of, of storytelling that's required to get you in the door on that potentially. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Really at the end of the day, if you want, if you really want a superhero, you just have to bite the bullet and just pick something and start somewhere and, you know, go on Wikipedia, read what's happened. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, because I remember when I was a kid, I started reading amazing Spider-Man I started right in the middle of whatever. It was in the, the early 200s of Amazing Spider-Man. And tons of stuff had happened. Yeah. But it didn't feel like I couldn't get on board. Like, it, it was all still, okay, Spider-Man. The baseline is relatively straightforward, you know. Yeah. And there's some great uh, superhero books right now that are do a really good job of bringing in new readers without making you feel like a, an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mark Wade's Daredevil series is phenomenal. Yes. And it's always really good at 
letting you know there's a sense of history and stuff has happened to the character, but you don't feel like you had to read every single one in order to be on board. Yeah. Um, you know, Ms. Marvel is phenomenal and it feels like sort of the modern era Spider-Man where you've got this youthful character trying to figure, figure themselves out, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, just stuff like that. So even the superhero books, I think there's ones that are kind of easy access in that way. Yeah. If, if you're careful about it. Yeah. Superhero books. If you were to choose one or two superhero books that you would like to write, which would they be? Um, I always say, uh, you know, Spider-Man was like my guy growing up mm-hmm. and I really uh, meant a lot to me. So that's obviously like the holy grail. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that's a little weird about that is Dan Slott's doing such a phenomenal job on the book. Yeah. And it's almost like, yeah, that's just not going to happen, A. And B, uh, I don't want Dan to stop writing the book. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, on the one hand, I would love to write Spider-Man. On the other hand, keep keep doing what you're doing, current team, because you're amazing. Um <laughs> So it's sort of weird. I love Doctor Strange. I'm really glad that they're doing a new Doctor Strange series. Yeah. You know, and I could sit there and be like, oh, I wish it was me. But on the <laughs> other hand, it's really cool seeing the character coming into prominence again and the idea that there's going to be a movie out there and people are going to be that much into the character. Um, you know, for me, I was a huge sword and sorcery fan growing up. And Doctor Strange was like the perfect balance point. Oh, he's like a wizard and he's a superhero. Yeah. Oh, okay. That guy's like my fantasy fix and my superhero fix. Yeah. Perfect. Hitting so all the cylinders just right. Oh yeah. So I love Doctor Strange. I loved Thor for that same kind of reason. Yeah. Dude running around with a giant warhammer kicking ass. <laughs> um Yeah, those are characters that immediately jump to mind as as characters that I would love to write. On the DC front, I like um, and again, it's this weird thing where the media around them is now swirling, but I've always liked the Suicide Squad because yeah. it's almost got that skull kickery kind of mercenary. Okay, we're going to, you know, do our mission even if it kills us because we're r- ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I like Harley Quinn a lot. I had fun writing a short story with her uh, for Legends of the Dark Knight yep. for Batman. Um, I quite like uh, Zatanna. Again, the magic thing is really big. I would love to write Zatanna. I think that would be a ton of fun and you can make a really cool and ridiculous kind of supernatural series with that. Um, you know, other characters in that kind of vein, just sort of, uh, you know, I like characters that are proactive and big action. I love writing action. I love writing big set piece kind of crazy stuff happening. Yeah. So any kind of character that pushes that stuff forward, I'm, I'm in. That's awesome. All right, let's talk a little bit about Skull Kickers. So Skull Kickers ended this week. Congrats again on that. Such an amazing run, an amazing series. Um, I love the uh, the random numbering that you added to the final issue. <laughs> Thanks. So to let your listeners know, so the last issue of the series technically would be issue thirty four. Yeah. But you know we've this Skull Kickers is a very sarcastic series and very tongue in cheek, and we tend to mock the comic industry a little bit. Yeah. And they've had this tendency to, to renumber their books until there's an anniversary, at which point they throw the numbers back to or they calculate in very weird ways. Yes. Uh, ways to sort of say, OK, no, it's an anniversary issue because they know those sell more. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, it's the last issue of our series and it's issue 34, but I want a big number. So we'll just call it 100. Yep. So we just put 100 on the cover. <laughs> we came up with an in-story justification for it as well yep. in a kooky way. but. At the end of the day, it was mostly because I thought it would be funny. Yeah. So, you know, what did the series overall mean to you? I know that, you know, you put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, It's really the book that, you know, 
where I started reading a lot of your work and you know, you came up on my radar. So now that it's over, like what does it mean to you and you know, how does it feel? Um, it's one of the, I don't want to sound too dramatic. Like I don't want to, you know, like nail my wrist to my forehead, but like skull kickers has changed my life. So, uh, what happened was I had done a few stories and I had written, uh, some stuff. I did a web comic from 2001 to 2003. That was, that was a story I put together, uh, called the makeshift miracle and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, I, I got into this business with entertainment as a whole to be a storyteller. And I had sort of been caught into this vortex of, of project management and, and kind of managing other people's stuff instead of creating my own. Mm-hmm. And so Skull Kickers really represents to me this idea that I can make something and I can finish it. I can take it through to the finish line. And so it really kind of gave me my confidence back and it proved to me that I could create something that was professional quality and it put me on the map for a lot of companies that would eventually end up hiring me to write for them. Mm -hmm. And so none of that stuff would have happened creatively speaking without skull kickers. Mm -hmm. So in that way, when I say it changed my life, it it really did. It, it, you know, sort of gave me a new career as a comic writer. Um, you know, and so it's always going to be very, very near and dear to me and everything else that I've done since then owes itself to, to what I did on Skull Kickers, mm-hmm. even when it's totally different styles of projects or totally different styles of writing, none of it would have happened if I wouldn't have, you know, pushed that ball down the hill kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, it feels really strange to be done it now, but I'm also really proud of the fact that we were able to finish it and that I've got that body of work now, you know, done and in the can and able to look at it as a whole and say, we did that, yeah. you know? And so for whatever... I'm sure I could find flaws in it and I'm sure I could nitpick a hundred little things, but really to me, I just got this incredible warm sense of this amazing thing that we were able to put together and, uh, and how, how important it's become, you know, to sort of my creative journey. Awesome. So that's Skull Kickers. Let's talk a little wayward. Sure. That series, honestly, it's one of my favorite series. It's my go-to every week or every month that it comes out that's the mm-hmm. first book that i read i've absolutely loved i love the anime feeling um as i've said many times uh, you and steve just i can tell you you guys have done so much research um because it just feels authentic it doesn't feel like you guys are just trying to replicate japanese culture and whatnot um you know wayward's done its second arc um you should tell listeners a little bit about sort of you know wayward and where you plan on going with it well wayward is a a really big story and a very different kind of story so i want you know skull kickers is is this sword and sorcery comedy and people expect from me kind of i guess kind of action silliness for you know and that's cool because that's the stuff that i love but wayward was a, a real you know kind of focused attempt to sort of show okay look you know i've got all sorts of different kinds of stories to tell Steve and I have been talking about working together for years and the timing finally worked and we were able to put this thing into play. So Wayward's a, a bit like Buffy in Japan in the yeah. sense that you've got teenagers fighting monsters. In this case, though, it's teenagers in Tokyo fighting uh, Japanese mythological monsters called yokai, which are like the spirits and, and yeah, the, the mythological monsters. So mm-hmm. the same kind of thing you'd have in, you know, in Europe where you've got unicorns and you've got the manticore or stuff like that. This is those types of legends, but in Japan. So we're taking a lot of those traditional kind of myths 
and we're updating them for the modern world and sort of showing them and contrasting them with modern Japan. And so Steve, who lives in Yokohama, which is just outside of Tokyo, yeah. he's raising a family there. And myself, we both love this stuff. We're both really into it. So we've done a, a slew of research to try and make it as you know, authentic as possible and uh, just deliver on the potential of these really, really cool, and to a North American audience at least, exotic you know, kind of stories and monsters. And it's just been a real great challenge. Like it's really pushed me as a writer to think deeper and to create something really complex and to see about, you know, sort of taking my storytelling skills, hopefully to the next level. And the response has been great. People are really into it. They're really enjoying it. Um, we try and bring something really exciting and unexpected from month to month. And, And so far we seem to be doing it. Yeah. Like, the number of characters you have in that book, I, I can't even imagine how you can write so many characters into, um, you know, one single issue. And I know yeah, that you, the week is a month. It's uh, yeah, we're not we're not Game of Thrones in it, but it's getting, <laughs> it's getting pretty dense at well, this it, point. Yeah, like I've, got a, I've the, got a chart in my office that's uh, sort of a listing of everyone and where they're currently at, where I'm scripting. Yeah. And uh, just trying to make sure everyone's sort of checked off. Okay. What, what's happening? What are they doing? You know, where, what's the forward momentum and where are we going with their character stuff? And even when I sit down like Steve and I, he's obviously on the other side of the world, but we usually meet up on Google hangout once or twice a week to sort of talk about how things are going. And, uh, sometimes I'm walking him through all of it and he's just like, okay, so what's happening? Like, where put <laughs> that again? I'm like, no, no, don't worry, this is going, oh, right, right. You know, we're just sort of like stepping through this thing and reminding each other of all the different little bits we've got to take care of, from, yeah. Yeah. you know, issue to issue. It's, uh, like I said, it's a real challenge. And and I love that about it. I love the fact that it's pushing me every single month to try and make all the pieces work and make it all, you know, feel like it's, it's got to read really well and smooth, but, you know, under the hood, you're just frantically uh, working your ass off. Oh, I, it, that that shows. Like, it, at no point was I like, "What just happened?" or "Who's this?" or "Where's this person?" Um, I've, it's always been an easy read, and oh, you know, cool. just expecting that character to come back or to do their next move or or whatever. It's just it's been a really fun ride these past two arcs. Oh, thank you. And yeah, the the response from people, I keep expecting sort of the other shooter drop and people to be like, oh, it's not working. Or they're like, oh, you're changing too much because we're doing some really big dramatic things in the story. Mm-hmm. So far, the readership seems really, mm-hmm. they trust us and they're on well, board and, and they want to see what comes Like I next. say, and I have put this in almost every review is, you know, Jim Zub and Steve Cummings are creating their way world. Like it's just, it's huge and it just mm-hmm. somehow it's all made sense and it's been awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's um, it, it is one of those things too, where I think with each sort of chapter, you know, obviously in any kind of collaboration, you get more comfortable and you realize what your strengths are and what the you know the other pre- people you're working with what their strengths are, and so you feed off of each other's energy. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of that here too, where some of the initial ideas I had about where the series could go, that I was a little bit timid about in the first few issues, I feel like by the second arc we got our our footing. And I was like, okay, no, we're going to go for it. Like we're going to take some bigger risks because I'd rather do that, especially on a creator owned series, than look back and be like, Oh, we could have taken it further. We could have gone bigger. You know what I mean? We could have made a bigger splash or, or surprise people more. And so 
this is the place to do it. Uh, you know, take those risks and and see where they see where they lead. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier that you know you wanted to be you wanted to write stories. You wanted to be a creator of sorts mm-hmm. in, in in the entertainment business. Um, currently, you're working on comic books. Um, are you working on anything else? Like, would you ever see yourself writing a novel, TV, movies? Um, I, I have done a little bit of animation writing and that's something that I'd be interested in doing, you know, more of depending on the scheduling stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently in the running to be possibly writing a video game oh, so awesome. nice. with a pretty big company. So they contacted me and asked about my interest and we're sort of talking back and forth. So it'll depend on what their needs end up being and schedule and, and, you know, if it all fits, but that could be a really cool challenge and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. It's not something where, like, you know, I don't begrudge anyone wanting to do different stuff. Like, um, but I'm not in comics because I really want to do movies. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I'm in comics because I really want to do comics. And that's my first goal. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just want to keep making stories. And I love the my ability to do that in a relatively controlled and focused way. Like, I'm not against doing movie stuff. And I'm sure at some point... You know, if, if the opportunity came up, I would definitely be interested in in trying that out. But that's not really my focal point right now. Yeah. Um, even the little bit that I've done in terms of animation, and I can see the there's a lot, lot, lot more limitations in terms of, you know, the bigger the money that's involved and the more, you know, people that need to approve that stuff, yeah. the more difficult it is to put your kind of personal notes into it. And that's totally cool. That makes sense. When people are paying money, they deserve to have their voice. They deserve to, you know, throw in, but with a movie production or even TV, there's so many people and there's so many voices and there's so many, there's so much money involved Mm -hmm. that you can lose some of that individuality. Yeah, for sure. It's not as much of a priority to me. You know, um, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy the focus that I've been able to get doing comics and, uh, yeah, that's sort of where where my head's at for the time being. Yeah, no, that that does make sense. Yeah. Makes sense to me. <laughs> um, you know, for our listeners who don't already know, you know, the reason why I've always respected Jim Zub um, is because on Twitter, I like to say he keeps it real. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of people always ask yeah. you tons of questions about getting in the business, what the business is actually like. Um, so, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about that part of the industry. Um, and I know that this always comes up. So I wanted to ask you, was like, you know, do you have any advice for any any aspiring writers for them sure. to sort of get their, their foot in? I mean, it's, it's always a weird kind of question, too, because I feel like as much as I've made a lot of progress, I'm still learning a lot. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I try and give people advice or I try and give them feedback and stuff, I try and temper it with this idea of, look, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't know every single, you know, pitfall that you can, you know, find in this, in this business. So please don't, you know, assume that this is a singular and only answer or that I have some monolithic sort of control of how these things are going to work. But on the other hand, I've been doing this for a little while and I've had some experiences and, and, if I can advise people or give them a little bit of uh, feedback that hopefully will help them to avoid a pitfall or look at something with a little bit of clarity, then I feel like that's really important. And so I try to do so as much as I can. 
Yeah, that's quite a preamble. Anyways, <laughs> um, the point, it's like I'm warning, yeah. Jim doesn't know everything. Yeah, warning, that's Jim doesn't secretly run the comic said. industry. So, uh, more than anything else, I think people get paralyzed by their thoughts about what could be instead of just hunkering down and, and making things. So, they're so busy worried about, well, what's step 12? Where do I, how am I going to, you know, um, impress this publisher or what do I do? in order to, you know, get on the project that I love rather than looking and saying, do, do I have the skills or am I showing the skills that they need to see that a company needs to see in order to hire me? And the only way to do that is to make stuff is to make stories. Mm -hmm. And that means you'll screw up and you'll do crappy ones, but I don't know what it is in, in a creative business. I think people have very weird expectations about their own skill level and what it takes to get better at it. Like for some reason, people think, I, I don't know if it's just American Idol kind of model of mm-hmm. you see these people step up and all of a sudden they become a star because they sang a song really well for two minutes. Yeah. But you don't see the fact that they practiced and they worked and they, this has been their passion for years. You mm-hmm. know, um, people get this idea in their head that they, that the destiny or something is all that matters instead of, you know, hard work and practice. I never would have, um, you know, no one, I'm trying to think even how to say this, like, like Samurai Jack was not a project that I sought out and thought, oh my God, I hope when I grow up, I get a chance to write Samurai Jack. That was an opportunity that came up because of Skull Kickers and because of other work that I had done. Mm-hmm. And it's a great project and it's a great fit for my skills. And it feels like a really good, solid, you know, fit for the type of work that I do. But the reason why I got it is because I made those other things. And so rather than worrying about, oh man, I wish I could write Wolverine or whatever, focus on like making stories, telling stories, making them as high quality as you can, Mm -hmm. and then learning from them and then moving on to the next project. Like if I, if you wanted to be a baseball pitcher, you wouldn't just walk out onto the baseball field and beg the team to let you play. Mm -hmm. You you would join, you know, a small baseball team or you Mm -hmm. would go through all the different levels of, of training and then, you know, your AAA and your AA and your all those different things that you need before you maybe get called up to the majors. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really the same in any other sort of field. If I wanted to be a chef, I don't just walk into a restaurant and be like, hey, can I be in charge? They're like, well, have you ever made food before? Yeah. And they're like, well, I watch the Food Network. And you're like, yeah, that's great. I love food. It's, it's my dream. It's what I've always wanted to do. You're like, well, but do you cook? No, but man, I can't stop reading about food. Yeah. And, and when it comes to comics, I find a lot of people have a very similar mentality. They do. Yeah. They go, man, I really want to write blah character. Yeah. And they're like, well, have you ever written a story before? You're like, no, but I read comics all the time and I read all the websites and I'm really into it. You're like, great. That means you're a fan. No, no, but I want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And you should write things. You should write stories and you should get better at them. And the only way to get better at them is to do them, you know? And so it sounds like a really blindingly obvious piece of advice, but don't worry about step 30. Like step one is make stories, get better at them, improve your skills, focus on that as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And, um, then, you know, be in, be a part of that community, be a part of that creative community. And that doesn't mean like tweeting at Brian Michael Bendis and expecting that he's going to respond. It's more like, oh, okay, finding another group of people kind of in your own weight class who are making and being creative 
And then as your skills grow, their skills grow and you're a little community and you look out for each other. Mm -hmm. And that's really what happened with us. Like the Udon guys kind of looked out for each other and, and built up their skills and did things together. And we've all kind of grown in terms of our opportunities and, and the things that have happened to us. Um, and the same holds true with the people that who were on the web around the same time that I was putting my original web comic online. Like I became friends with like the Penny Arcade guys or, or Scott Kurtz from PVP. And we were all just kind of doing stuff without a sense of, oh man, 10 years from now, we're all going to be a big deal. You know, it was just, we're making things. And so rather than being focused on the end goal, we were focused on the immediate, which was, which was making stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Like you have to pay your dues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people think pay your dues is something like, oh, well, you've got to suck up to people or yeah. you've got to be, um, Running you know, you can't get in unless, um, you kiss ass or something like that. It's like, no, that's not actually it. What they mean by that is you have to make stuff and you have to prove that your work is of professional caliber. Yeah. Got to hone your skills. Don't expect necessarily you're going to get the opportunity you, you imagine because other things are going to come up. And then if you make good use of them, hopefully they turn into other, other great opportunities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I I I thought it was really funny you compared it to uh, American Idol because I always thought it was the '80s montage screwed people up because it's like no, it's just an afternoon is all you need to be the best. Right, right. Yeah. Just one really good song number. Yeah, and then you got cuts, it, and it's all coming together. Yeah. Um. So another one of the jumping not back to another one of Kyle's questions. He was wondering like what's like what's influencing you now? Like especially you were saying you're doing a bunch of research for Wayward, jumping to that mm. back to that for a bit, and like where are the influences? coming from because part of being a writer is you got to read and you got to take stuff in so it's like what's inspiring um it can be a little bit difficult Mm -hmm. yeah it can be a little bit difficult to even trying to keep up on comics while you're making comics yeah like one of those weird things too i know guys that are working in video games and the last thing they do when they go home is play video games because they're exhausted by the whole thing yeah but uh it's true though like i obviously i try and keep up on on books i used to try and make sure that i would read every book that was being made by friends of mine. But as I've been doing more and more stuff and meeting more people, that's impossible now. Yeah. Do you have like a pile waiting for you? I can't even keep up on Charles Soule's books. And he's a dear friend of mine. The other guy's writing too much stuff. (laughs) Um, But it's like, so you try and and keep up on books you hear are good. I try not to hate read. I try not to read books that, that suck for the sake of sucking. Like it's easy to sit there and read books that are not, what you would want them to be and mm-hmm. be like, I could do better than that. You're like, whatever. It's yeah. not going to get you anywhere. That's not going to help. Yeah. So I try and read stuff that inspires or things that I think are, are really, really phenomenal mm-hmm. and then kick myself and want more out of yeah. my own work. But yeah. It makes you do better. Not be like, ah, oh, I'm better than this guy. Uh, yeah. Fine. Well, like, yeah. You want to always be challenging and always be the point at all sorts of garbage and say, look, I'm better than garbage. Yeah. Well done. It's like, so, yeah, congratulations quite a bar you've set for yourself <laughs> um so it's like yeah trying to stay you know sort of focused on what what i can look at and, and improve upon or you know it can be weird once you have a little bit of a body of work i don't i don't tend to like reread my own stuff too much but i from time to time i read my stuff and i sort of try and look at it with a little bit of detachment like okay it's been a couple years since i wrote this story mm-hmm. is it does it hold up what what do I like about it? What do I think Jim Zub's doing well? You know what yeah. I mean? And and try and remember that and reconnect with it so that I don't 
sort of lose track of that moving forward. Okay. Um, I also just take in a lot more experiences. So when mm-hmm. I'm traveling, whether it's convention travel or, or travel for fun, um, I try and listen more. I want to hear how people speak. So it yeah. helps me to write dialogue. I try and, you know, if someone else is telling a story, I want to sort of look at it and think about, okay, what, like, what is the emotional core of this? Or why is this mm-hmm. affecting me? Or what, you almost become like a little Terminator. It's like you're analyzing everything around yeah. you. I watch a movie or a TV show, and if it's really good, yeah, I sort of go, okay, that was amazing. Why did this emotionally affect me? Or mm-hmm. what made it good? And if it sucks, I can learn from it too. I'm like, why yeah. did this lose my attention? Why am I no longer committed to this? And how can I make sure I don't do that in my own stories? Yeah, because everything know? gets broken down into the constituent parts, and you're like, ah, here's the good, here's the bad, and... How, yeah, how it's like, I, I guess it's like a mechanic yeah. if they heard, you know, they get in your car, they're like, I hear something weird with the engine, you know, they can't help it. Yeah. I'm sort of like when I'm looking at stories now, like I want to, I want to know how they tick. I want to get under the hood and, and really understand them as much as I can. I think it can be a little annoying sometimes for other people. Yeah. It's like, I'll be with my family and they'll be telling me a, an anecdote or something and they're just really poor at dramatically pacing it. <laughs> answer questions about what I need to know in order to give a damn. And so I'm getting confused by the story and I'm like asking for clarification and they're just like, what, why are you, why are you worried about this? I'm like, I don't, you're not doing this right. <laughs> for God's sake, we set the scene, you know, like, <laughs> come on, draw me <laughs> in. It's a little weird sometimes. Yeah, you're, you're, you're but I'm sure it's like fun. anyone in any business. I'm sure if you tried to cook for a chef, they would be like, stop doing that. Yeah. yeah. You just know. everything's like, no, the garlic needs to be later. Oh my God, you're killing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, the other thing that you always talk about also is the financial point of view. So we already talked about sort of, you know, an aspiring writer needs to write, but they also need mm-hmm. to have that realistic expectation as to how much money they're going to be getting once they oh, actually yeah. get their work yeah. out there. Where is the food coming from? Yeah. Right. Um, well, I think people are shocked when uh, I've had, you know, uh, it's always weird to talk about this in a, in a detached sense to say, okay, I've had a certain degree of success, Mm -hmm. but comics are still not my only job and I'm still teaching and I'm still doing that, that work because, um, the reality is that comics can really come and go in terms of financial stability. Yeah. And so I looked at it and I said, okay, I can live a very, very frugal life and we can move outside of the big city and, you know, that would be that, or I can try and balance both and, and teaching acts is sort of my financial stability and something mm-hmm. I also really love um, while I'm doing these writing projects. And that's, you know, what works best for us now in our family. And so, uh, but that's been a tough decision because I know a lot of people, they'll talk to me and they can't believe that I'm doing this and I'm teaching or that I'm not yeah. just focused on my writing or they're like, well, you're writing a lot of stuff. It's like, yeah. But that comes and goes in mm-hmm. terms of you know, uh, the amount of work that's involved. You know, on my peak last year, I was writing six books in a month, and that was unhealthy in a lot of ways because it was so much work. Mm-hmm. But then once those projects wrap up, you know, it's uh, you're no longer on the stake train. You know, you're <laughs> yeah. it's a much different financial situation. And creator-owned books can really come and go. Like I've never um, 
shied away from the fact that Skull Kickers has not always been the most financially successful series. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't what it was about. It was about making something and showing people that I could create something of professional quality. Yeah. It wasn't about, okay, you know, we're making big bucks. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would be happy to make big bucks. But not gonna it complain. was really, a, I have a story to tell and we're doing this thing and making sure that the art team gets paid because they have to focus almost completely on Skull Kickers. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can write lot more than just one book so yep that's exactly it like there's a lot of sacrifices a lot of uh thinking a lot of discussions that you have to have with your family and things like that that i think a lot of people kind of don't realize when they say i want to be a comic book writer mm-hmm. well and, and with that trying to sound really crass and i'm not begrudging anyone you know in many ways i could look at a lot of different occupations and i could make assumptions about what that occupation entails yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they say they want to be a writer, what they really mean is they want to have written. So they want to have mm-hmm. a successful book that they're sitting around autographing and people yep. are telling them they're smart and great. Yeah, they want and to be David Duchovny that, in Californication. Yeah, yeah, they want to have success. And yeah. it's like, well, they're trying to be too crass. Who doesn't? Like, yeah. We all want to have success, right? But the the steps involved and the sacrifices involved in doing that, you know, when, when my parents haven't seen me for months on end because I've got crazy cascading deadlines or when I'm on the road traveling, doing promotion, trying to make every convention a winner so that we can build up the war chest and make more stories. Mm -hmm. You know, people just look at it and they go, Oh, you're traveling. That's so exciting. And it's like, it is good. And I love traveling and I'm totally into it. But there's times when it's a grind and there's times when writing is a grind and there's times when it's difficult, but you still have to do it. It's not just about doing it when it's fun. It's not just about doing it when it's exciting. You know, and, and so those are the aspects I think that people don't realize. I, you know, I was at New York Comic Con last year and someone came up to me and they said, I'm going to be where you are next year. And I said, well, I hope not because I'm at this table. <laughs> um, but, so, but not only that, but I think they had this idea of like, well, if I say it and then it'll happen. You're like, yeah, yeah you know, desire is a big part of doing. Mm-hmm. But beyond saying it, there's doing it. There's the will to carry it out and to prioritize it over other things mm-hmm. and there's no right or wrong answer you know sometimes people say to me oh i want to write stories and i go you can yeah. and they sort of give me this weird like half smile like no like really yeah. like no like really yeah but you have to start doing it and then you have to realize oh those other things that people ask you to do this weekend you can't do that mm-hmm. yeah. not if you're working on this thing you know what i mean or you don't have you know if you have a kid or if you have other things that are getting in your way that's you have to decide not that i'm saying like don't raise children <laughs> but just every time you've got things going on you're gonna have to prioritize yeah, yeah. you know what i mean it's, and that's in a creative lifestyle where it's not a nine-to-five job it's that much more difficult yeah mm-hmm. it's really no it's it's very similar to any job really but i think really what i've noticed with the comic industry is that people just have these weird ideas and dreams and again it's not to say don't dream big but mm-hmm. you have to work to get there and you know these yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not going to happen overnight yeah well and not only that but i think there's this weird sense of um and it's not entitlement it's not quite the right word i want to use but you know so someone says oh you know i want to write whatever spider-man you know because i now know the business and i know more about it the first thing i think about is oh dan slot writes spider-man Hmm. Do I want Dan Slott fired? Like, is that my oh, goal? Yeah. No, I want to write that book. Like, 
okay, I think I could do a good job at it, but now I know these people and I know what they're doing and I know who they are and I know the type of passion they have. And so that empathy of sort of looking and saying, that's not all about me. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just my dreams. Like everyone who's wanted to work in this business has those kinds of dreams, has those kinds of desires. And I hope that I get a chance to partake in some of them, but I hopefully I'm not selfish enough to just only think of myself as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, something I was meaning to ask the entire interview is so, you know, there's been a lot more focus on creator-owned books um, with tons of the all-new, all-different Marvel books. You're seeing some pretty big names missing from their lineup. I know not every book's been announced, but you are, you know, Rick Remender's already said that he wants to step back, focus on family, creator-owned projects. Um, Kelly C. DeConnick sounds like she's going to be working more on a lot of her uh, create our own books. Do you see the shift on, you know, some of the quote unquote more established writers moving towards creator own for whether it be financial gains, whether it be control, whether it be just, you know, having time again? I think it's a mixture of those things. Um, you know, the, the corporate projects are a lot of work, not that creator owns not God knows, but <laughs> yeah. they're very different types of expectations, mm-hmm. you know? And so, what what seemed to happen before was that people would do creator-owned books, or even four or five years ago, people would do creator-owned books to prove themselves to get a Marvel gig or to get a DC gig. And it's almost like the polarity is reversing, where people are realizing, actually, if I build myself as a, and I hate to use the term, but I don't know how else to put it, as a brand, mm-hmm. that people aren't just reading. I mean, obviously, there are a chunk of people that read Samurai Jack because they love the show and they wanted to read new adventures of, of Jack. Mm-hmm. But there was a percentage of people that were reading it because they liked Skull Kickers or because they liked the other work that I've done and vice versa that hopefully after Jack was over, some of those people come with me and check out Skull Kickers or they check out Wayward or they check out Dungeons and Dragons and other stuff I'm doing. And so yeah. as much as it is, you know, the book that it is, it's also a Jim Zub book and that that will eventually carry weight on its own sort of merits. And I think you see that with someone like Kelly Sue or you see that with Matt Fraction or, or you know, Kieran uh, Gillen or any of those guys where they are building their own kind of audience that is into the stuff they're into. Yeah. They realize that that has a real strength in the market and that that loyalty, you know, they can work with and, and create something very unique if they're at a certain point in their success. And so you're seeing more and more of that where people, the type of, pioneering that the image creators did in the early 90s when they said we're at the peak of our career and now we're going to step away from the books we're known for and make our own things it is kind of the same sort of pioneering mindset where these guys are like look i've got a lot of pull right now i've got Mm -hmm. the ability to sort of bring an audience to a story and i don't want to let that slip through my fingers so you know rather than trying to prioritize and keep all the plates spinning I'm going to step away from my corporate gigs for a bit and do this thing. Yeah. And really maximize the potential, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And if it works, the, the financial potential is huge because um, the market is, you know, that much more engaged with it and the international market. So like foreign reprinting or whether it's movie or television adaptation and all that stuff. If it, if it happens, you know, you've got sort of the, the gold ring there mm-hmm. and it feels like it's not, as big a risk to, to at least try and do something in that space. Yep, exactly. 
All right, we've talked a lot about the business, about certain particular projects of yours. Let's talk in general. You know, what's what's coming up for Jim Zub in the next uh, few months? Um, I'm at a, a weird sort of space right now where we just wrapped up, um, you know, the last arc of Skull Kickers. Wayward Arc 2 is done, so we're in development on the third arc. We're working away on that. I was scripting on that this morning, you know, plugging away on, on the new issues. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be taking a lot of my focus right now. I've got a second Dini, Dini, Disney <laughs> miniseries yep. that I'm doing based on uh, Epcot, which is you know Figment oh. and Dreamfinder, which mm-hmm. is uh, coming out in September. Oh, and cool. Disney, it seems weird because I'm talking all about creator-owned, creator-owned, and then I'm yeah. like, hey, I'm doing this Disney project, yeah. the biggest entertainment company on earth. Uh, but it's been great. Uh, they've actually been really wonderful to work with. And the Imagineering team mm-hmm. is very supportive and they're very cool about sort of, I came to the table with this story and they wanted me to do it. And so they haven't been like, they're not choking the life out of it. That's very much about let's collaborate and make something really special. And so it's nice to have that happening, mm-hmm. but I'm almost done. That's the weirdest part. By the time the first issue comes out, I will be finishing the final issue. Yeah, it's, uh, is it just a five issue again? Yeah, it's another five issue miniseries like we did with the first one. Mm -hmm. And if it does well, I'm sure there will be, you know, discussion of of do we go with another one or or what comes next. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's nice because I, the weird thing is in some ways the pressure is off. By the time the book's coming out, I'm pretty much done. So hopefully people like it, but I can't, I can't change it even if they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is what it is at that point. You just sort of ride it out. And we yeah. were very fortunate that the first series was so well received and the Disney fandom uh, really, really loved it. And um, I'm actually heading to the D23 Expo, which is the Disney convention. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Next weekend. And so I'm going to be promoting Figment there and uh, doing a signing with the Imagineering team, which is kind of surreal and wonderful. Very um, cool. And so I've got those two projects that are immediate. I've got a couple pitches that are in for some corporate stuff that uh, one of them is what we lovingly call a bake-off. So it's like there's multiple writers who have pitched on a particular property. Oh, yeah. We're going to see who gets it. That's what happened with Samurai Jack. There were mm-hmm. seven, I believe, seven writers that pitched for Jack. Oh, wow. It was the one they decided to go with, which is nerve-wracking. Yeah. But nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I, uh, looking, you know, hoping that, that, that all, uh, goes through well and, and, you know, I've got more of those kinds of projects coming down the pipe, but we'll see anything's possible. Yeah. Um, and then I've also got some creator owned stuff that I'm slowly developing. So, uh, when we did the last arc of skull kickers and, uh, like, sorry, when wayward launched skull kickers was on hiatus. And so it still felt kind of like I just had one creator own book because yeah. there was only one running at any one time. But doing the last arc of Skull Kickers and the second arc of Wayward was really, really intense in terms of the workload. Mm-hmm. And so my original plan was I was going to have new creator own pitches ready to deliver to publishers at San Diego. And then I realized, oh, God, that's not happening. I'm exhausted. <laughs> So now I'm sort of looking at New York Comic Con and saying, okay, that's when I'm going to be kind of putting out the feelers for my next creator-owned project and slowly see, uh, you know, what comes next. But I don't want to even put a timeline on when we would launch it or what, you know, what it's going to be because 
even with Wayward, there was a few projects in between Skull Kickers and Wayward that were in development and that I thought were happening. And then they, they scuttled out for yeah. various reasons. Either publishers didn't go for them or the artist wasn't available anymore or, you know, just plans change. And so I've got stuff in the hopper, but I'm not, I'm not too stressed about it. You know, something yeah. will come about and just keep plugging away. Cool. Yeah. In terms of conventions, uh, where can uh, we find you? Well, I'm going to be at the D23 Expo. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a table or anything. It's not that kind of convention. I'm going to be doing presentations on Sunday, mostly, including a signing at the show. Um, I'm also going to be at Fan Expo Canada, which is here in Toronto. And that's like the biggest, you know, kind of pop culture comic show in Canada. Yeah. Um, and I'll have a table set up there. I'll be there every day of the show. We're going to have the, the second Wayward Trade launching there, which is great because a year ago when we launched the series, that was our first issue. Yep. And now one year later, we've got two trade paperbacks, which I feel really proud of. Yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> able to keep the momentum yeah, you know, so strong. There are some creator-owned books that just the hiatus, like, again, you know, things happen, but it kind of really loses its momentum. Oh, yeah, it hurts the momentum big time. Like, yeah. I don't know if we can keep... I don't know if next year I'll have four trades. That would be uh, pretty freaking amazing, but I don't know <laughs> oh, if that's possible. Hefty, yeah. But I do know we will definitely, you know, be, be have the third arc done yeah. and continue like to away on it. It just amazes me, like, the saga, how Fiona Staples and Brian K. Vaughn can keep their momentum and their schedule the way that they have it. Yeah. Well, it's, the good thing is, is that for both of them, that can be their absolute full-time job. Exactly. That's yeah. They, they have that advantage. Trailing in terms of the sales, mm -hmm. and so it makes it that much easier when you don't feel the pressure of, oh, I have to take on all these hundred other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, it helps that the book's phenomenal. It's not yeah. like yeah, he's the biggest you know sort of uh, factor there. Yeah, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but what else? So yeah, so Fan Expo Canada uh, is going to be great, and then I'm doing. It looks like I'm going to be doing a Tapaticon, which is like this little web comic. Yep. Uh, show that's going to be happening in Maryland uh, that's run by friends of mine who run Tapatico, the guys that do questionable content and, and all sorts of other cool web comics. It's mostly like an excuse to, to hang out with my friends, mm -hmm. uh, but we're going to be there and it's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, I'm also going to be doing New York Comic Con and that's where we're going to kind of have our big kind of blowout for Skull Kickers because we're going to have the last collections there for sale and Edwin and I are going to be set up together and sort of doing the big send off for the series. So Very the last cool. issue is out, but yeah, the last trade paperback and the last sort of deluxe hardcover will be available in New York. Yeah. That's awesome. And then also you can find the, uh, Conan Red Sonia, uh, hardcover mm -hmm. out in stores right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just came out. Those I'm books really were proud of that. Yeah. Those books are told me when I was like 12 years old that I had my name <laughs> on a Conan book. Yeah. And just ridiculous actually mm -hmm. before we go i did have one question and i've been yeah. meaning to ask you this via email for so long is how did you and gail simone sort of um you know split the writing duties because oh, what right. i've always said it's absolutely seamless like you oh, can't thanks. you can't even tell who wrote what and that <laughs> made that even cooler for me oh cool thank you it was a ton of fun so gail brought me on board that project and she's been a dear friend and a supporter for quite some time and so I was really, you know, honored to, to even be invited into it. Um, and so first things first, we sort of sat down and, and said, okay, let's do like a laundry list of the kinds of things we want to do on this series. So we, um, it was almost like, it was like a wish list. What, what makes Conan and Red Sonja so awesome and what can we do to exemplify it? 
if this is our only chance to ever write these two Titans sort of together, let's just blow it out and go for broke. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, we just back and forth, we need this kind of a thing. And there's gotta be some sort of a, a theft and a caper, or there's gotta be a gladiatorial combat scene and, you know, this sort of stuff. So it's almost like we were building this wish list of best of Conan, Red Sonja kind of moments, and then working our way backwards through them and figuring out a plot uh, that would, that would fit them all in. Um, one of the things early on that we were really a little stressed about was, well, what era of Conan and Red Sonja do you want to deal with? Do you want to have them when they're young and impetuous or do you want to have them when they're older and more experienced? Yeah. And Gail quite brilliantly came up with the conceit that they would do something in their youth that would pay dividends when they were older. So we didn't have to pick. We could <laughs> use every generation of them. And that became the framework for everything else. Yeah. And so... Um, once we had this broad idea of these are the types of set pieces and this is the kind of stuff we're going to do, then I, uh, Gail had the idea about the stuff called Bloodroot, which was this plant that, um, you know, with this cursed plant that would be, that would kill millions if it left unchecked. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of built that into a framework that made the overarching sort of plot. This is what's going to happen. These things happen at these times. And so we got that approved by the rights holders for both Conan and Red Sonia. And then um, we, we had it plotted out and then we did what was essentially what's called sort of a, like, you know, ping ponging the script. So Gail would write five or six pages and then I would write five or six pages building on what she'd written and back and forth and back and forth. And then once the entire issue script was written that way, we would both do kind of an edit pass and make sure that the dialogue worked and it sounded seamless or that the scene to scene transitions were correct and that it didn't feel like two people tug of war, but that it felt like one consistent story. Um, and it's funny because the early drafts of the scripts, there are some weird ways that I do things that are different than Gail that mm-hmm. if you'd have seen it, you'd be like, well, it's friggin' obvious who wrote which stuff. <laughs> like uh, one of the things I tend to use a lot more sound effects. Mm-hmm. So we would have fight scenes and my fight scenes would just be littered with sound effects and hers would be mostly silent. And you'd be like, oh, well, crap. It's so it's so obvious which one's which, right? So we would go back in and adjust those so it wasn't quite so painful, you know, which one was which and, and you know, kind of come up with a standard that would fit the story as a whole. But that was the whole, you know, on, on the first issue, that's where we sort of figured that all out, where we kind of, oh, this is how we work together or this is what works best for the two of us. Um, and then our editor, of course, you know, uh, Dave was amazing. He was great at... at you know, exemplifying what needed, what was needed in the script or what elements we were putting into it that would have the most impact. Mm -hmm. And so having his guiding hand, being able to step away as a a third party and sort of say, okay, here's what I like Mm -hmm. and here's what I think you're doing really well was super valuable. So the two of us weren't too, um, that we weren't overly precious about particular elements or, you know, that our egos were properly in check as we were, going through this thing so it wasn't as something as simple as like i'm writing all the conan and she's writing all the red sonia it was very much back and forth yeah and i think that that's why it works is because we both got to bring some of our strengths to it Mm -hmm. and i got to learn a lot about you know gail's really really strong storytelling instincts and her ability to stage a scene and the way that she thinks about storytelling so you know i in my case i definitely learned a lot just working with her yeah, no, that that's it. Like again, it's mm-hmm. not the sounds too. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. I liked it a lot. 
yeah, it was a real special project and I feel like it was a real milestone for me. So, yeah. um, yeah, it felt, like I said, really odd once we'd wrapped it up and I kind of looked in the rearview mirror and said, Oh man, like that happened. That <laughs> really cool. You know? So. Yeah. So tons of Jim's up books out, uh, listeners more be coming. sure to check them out. Yeah. Uh, hopefully more coming. Oh um, yeah. And the easiest way to find out is to just head to my website. So just mm -hmm. jimsup.com. So J I M Z U B.com is the easiest uh, place to find me. And there's also a ton of tutorial material, like you were talking about earlier. So if people want to find out about the business or, or, you know, how I write a script or how I come up with a story idea or how a pitch tends to be structured. Mm -hmm. uh, there's quite a few resources there for people to dig in on. And it's fantastic. I've been reading through your stuff and it's just like, Oh, this is, this is like, this should be a book that you've written. So, well, it's, you know, it's really nice. I, last night I was out at a friend's place mm -hmm. and I got a message from a, a prose writer who's yeah. a friend of mine. And she was saying that she's just getting into pitching for comic book projects now. Okay. And she was really nervous about putting her first pitch together. And then she looked at sort of the pitches I had online and she goes, Oh, okay. I can see how this all fits together. And she feels a lot more confident about putting her pitch in. And I thought, man, like if, if you're able to, you know, if she gets into the industry and I'm sure she'll do wonderfully, you mm -hmm. know, I, I had even the tiniest part in that, then I feel that much better about what I'm doing. Cause that's really the point is I want to be able to help people avoid the pitfalls that I had to figure out the hard way. Yeah. So. It's again, it's that strong community that's building that community. You know, it's, it's part of the whole, whole thing. Absolutely. <laughs> and you can find Jim's up on Twitter. I believe it's at Jim's up. It is. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so, Jim, do you have any final words for our listeners? Um, I just, I deeply appreciate the support that people have shown for the work I've been doing. So it's, uh, it's something I never want to take for granted. You know, like people have a lot of choices when it comes to comics and when it comes to media. Mm -hmm. So when they pick mine and when they tell me that, you know, the books I'm doing mean a lot to them, it's, it's a, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool feeling. And I just hope that that, Keeps on rolling. Yeah. Well, we hope that we can uh, chat with you again soon. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Line. Always. Yeah. At. So again, uh, we hope to have you again. And Jim Zub, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much, Trump. There you have it, listeners. Jim Zub. And there you have it. As I gotta say, that was a really fun interview back then. It was fun re-listening to it. And again, I pretty much left it uncut. I did remaster it again because of technology and, you know, communication. Uh, apps weren't as good as they are now and weren't as good um, quality. So I tried to do what I can and I hope it came out good enough for all of our listeners. So... If you want to send feedback, you can send us feedback. You can find us on the social medias at It's Canon Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also email us at show at itscanonpodcast.com. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon, any podcasting app. Make sure to hit the subscribe that helps us leave a rating leave a review and i think we're gonna have a contest in the new year with our reviews um but we'll talk about that once we get back to work so i hope that everyone enjoyed the episode uh, because it was a lot of fun doing it back then and it was fun to revisit it especially when you see you know where things 
where we were back then and where we are now. Uh, so again, I want to thank Jim Zub for being such, a, you know, a good person. Um, it's always fun to chat with him, and I hope that we can have him back on the show soon. Having said that, it is time for us to go. On behalf of Tyler and Phil, good night. <laughs>